So, uh, welcome. Um, my name is Chris Holderog, and I am one of the ruling elders here at Heritage Presbyterian Church. Our newly elected pastor, Dan Warren, is off today. Um, interestingly, he was elected pastor last week, so he thinks he gets a vacation. Um, so, you get me in his stead. Uh, but uh, I was ordained as an elder here in uh, 2022, so I'm still relatively new in this role. Uh, but prior to this, I was ordained as a deacon in another church uh, in this presbytery back in 2011, uh, where I served for about five years. And uh, because we're currently taking uh, nominations for deacon, uh, Dan asked me to look into this text in Acts chapter 6 with an eye toward the role of deacon in the church, um, but also to look at how God is calling each of us with regard to service to one another. Now, there are several avenues that uh, one could take in this text, and, and we won't get to everything here that the text offers us. But today, I want to focus on how God's Word first changes the mind, which then changes the heart, which leads to a response of obedience that blesses others. So let us begin with our text this morning by reading from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It is on page 1086 in your pew Bible. Uh, so please stand if you are able um, as we hear the word of the Lord. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the, the, the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness as there is no person who is outside of your grace. Open our ears, Lord, to understand your word for us today and soften our hearts to truly desire to implement it in our own lives. Let us be ministers of your grace as you have been gracious to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So uh, we read here in verse 1 that the young church is growing. It is growing despite the attacks the devil has laid against her in the first five chapters of Acts. Uh, let me summarize very briefly. Uh, the apostles witnessed Christ's ascension in chapter 1, and this was closely followed by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The apostles began uh, then preaching with boldness and power, and many people were being saved. In response, Peter and John were arrested more than once for preaching the gospel of Christ in Solomon's portico in the temple. The first time they were arrested, uh, they were released and, and threatened to speak no more in the name of Jesus. So they prayed for boldness and returned to preaching in the temple. 
they again were arrested and thrown in jail for preaching Christ. But this time, they were freed by an angel of the Lord who commanded them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The very next day, while the council was trying to figure out where they were, they were found in the temple boldly preaching again. This time they were arrested by the council and beaten. Chapter 5, verse 40 tells us, They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, despite the persecution, they continued to preach Christ. And thousands were being added to the church because the word of life is being proclaimed in truth and in power. It's interesting to note that when God's word is being preached and the gospel goes forth in power, the devil resists and attacks the church. It happened then and it still happens today. We should not be surprised by this, but respond in faith. Against this backdrop of growth in the face of persecution, we come to chapter 6, and we will see how the early church responded. So, beginning in verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now at that time there were two main groups within the church. The Hebrews were native Jews who spoke Aramaic as their primary language and attended Hebrew-speaking synagogues, uh, while the Hellenists were Jews from the diaspora, uh, whose primary language was Greek. Both groups heard the gospel message and were converted to Christianity. And the Christian church became their primary community and support network in place of of the synagogue. So as more and more people have come to faith in Christ and looked to the Christian church for its support, the 12 apostles are realizing that they cannot care for all of these people effectively. This is a critical juncture for the growing church. And the people look to the 12 apostles to attend to this problem and set it right. If it is not corrected, there is a risk of division in the church. But if the apostles take over the administration of the distributions, there is a risk also that it will consume all of their time at the expense of spreading the gospel message. Something must be done. Now, realizing that there is wisdom in a multitude of counsel, we see in verse 2 that the twelve summoned the full number of of the disciples. Presbyterians like to look at this as the first general assembly in the church. We don't know if they wrote an overture or not, but we do know that they gathered all the disciples together to hash out the issue. Uh, The the apostles said in verse 2, It is not right we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So why would they say it is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word, uh, the preaching of the word of God to serve tables? Isn't it important to be fair to the widows and take care of them? Didn't we read that in Deuteronomy? Yes, 
But this passage is telling us that there is a priority of importance being set forth here. The primary goal of the church is to proclaim the Gospel. To bless people with the preaching of God's Word. No other institution on earth has the authority to do that. The church is the keeper of the truth and the protector of its purity. It has been uniquely entrusted with the truth of God's revelation of Himself and of the path to reconciliation for sinners. Without that truth, all mankind is lost in its sin. It doesn't matter how full your pockets are, how big your house is, or how full your belly is. If you do not know the Word of God, you are dead in your trespasses and in your sin. This is why it would not be right for the apostles to give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Even the care of widows, which is explicitly commanded in God's Word, as we saw in our Old Testament passage, it is secondary to the preaching of God's Word. If we get that priority backwards, we quickly lose our way. Look around at some of the churches in our nation today. Many churches, especially our mainline churches, exist today primarily to promote social causes rather and earthly works. But in doing so, they have made God's word secondary. And grievous error has crept in to those churches. And even while some of these organizations can do some good, so many of them have lost their knowledge, love, and obedience to the word. Satan's attacks do not always look like persecution. Sometimes they are as subtle as distraction. It is easy for us to get distracted from the Word of God, even when engaged in activities that the Lord calls upon us to do. But when we make programs or activities or parachurch ministries take precedence over God's Word, we miss the main point. We leave ourselves open to false teaching, false doctrine, and apostasy. Yes, our bellies may be filled, but the eternal soul is left to rot in its sinful condition. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The blessing of the word is of paramount importance. This is why in verse 4, the apostles state, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice that they added prayer this time to the ministry of the Word. Why? Because prayer gives power to the Word. Before I was a Christian, I actually began reading the Bible in large part to understand it well enough to refute it. Uh, Christianity was still nonsense to me. I found no more wisdom in the Bible than I did in a fortune cookie. But as my life ran on to meaninglessness... I began to seriously consider the claims made in the Bible and wondered if the promises to Abraham in Genesis were true. What if Jesus was real? What if there was a path to a new life that I didn't know? It wasn't until I prayed to God and asked Him to show Himself to me in desperation that the words on the paper of my stolen Gideon Bible took on life. Yes, prayer loosens the power of God, and He is pleased to pour it out upon those who ask according to His will. 
So the, the apostles resisted the temptation to become distracted from their calling to pray and to preach the word. But we still have this problem with the widows being neglected in the distribution. Doesn't the church still have an obligation to them? Well, if our theology stopped in our head and never migrated south of our necks to our heart, our Christian life would be incomplete. We read in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, the word deacon is not used in this passage, but it is often looked to as the first election of deacons. Now, before we unpack the qualifications for these men, let's look briefly at the seven who were selected. Uh, Verse 5 states that... um, Uh, What they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now the seven who are chosen here are all Greek-speaking Hellenists, and were well-equipped to serve the immediate need of the widows who were being neglected. The apostles then prayed for them and laid their hands on them. And this essentially commissions them for the ministry and asks the Holy Spirit to empower the men for this task. But what set these men apart? Why were they chosen? The main qualifications listed here are character traits. They must be of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, Why these traits? These men were trusted to act on behalf of the whole group and seek the glory of God. To be full of the Spirit and of wisdom implies that they knew the Word of God well and were closely walking with Him. One could say that they were both humble and obedient to God's Word. You will also find the description of qualifications for deacons listed right after that of elders in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. It says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good understanding for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now the first thing you notice is that nearly all the qualifications for both office, elder and deacon, primarily describe the character of the man, just as in Acts 6. The only noticeable difference between the two offices is that ability to teach is not a requirement for deacon where it is for elders. For deacon, it says, a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is describing a man who clearly understands the gospel and demonstrates a life of obedience to it. God is not concerned merely with how much Bible knowledge a deacon can present but how much of that biblical instruction has penetrated his heart? The deacon demonstrates the gospel 
primarily through his deeds and his actions. He stands at the intersection of God's word and a changed heart. I once had a pastor who was fond of saying, what goes deep goes out. What he meant by that was that when the gospel goes deep and a person really begins to understand the depth of his sin and how much he has been forgiven, the debt of gratitude he owes Jesus and the mercy he's been shown, it ceases to be merely an intellectual faith that lives up here in our heads. When the gospel goes deep, it changes the heart and it commands a response. It commands obedience. The gospel isn't something I merely study for personal edification, but something I do that changes the way I treat other people. It changes my priorities. It changes how I want to spend my time and my money. It changes my desires to the desires of Jesus. And in this way, our heart is blessed by the gospel. What I'm describing here is not to be confused with works or emotionalism, where we're chasing some sort of spiritual feeling or emotional high. I'm not adding treasure into uh, my, my spiritual box here. But uh, this is different. This is a heartfelt response anchored in the truth of the gospel, grounded in Christ, rooted in who he is and what he did for us on the cross, and what he is still doing for us even now. According to our Book of Church order, the office of deacon is a ministry of sympathy and service after the example of the Lord Jesus. The key to this clause is after the example of the Lord Jesus. Let's ponder that for a moment. What was the example of Jesus? He was the Word made flesh. Now God could have sent a letter, but He sent a man. He did this for good reasons. Primarily to teach us the Word of God and to make atonement for our sin. But He also sent a man to demonstrate what it looks like to live God's Word. To put God's Word into action. If someone asked us to describe the example of Jesus, many of us would turn to the Gospels and say, look here, listen to his own words, read of the marvelous things he's done. And that would be absolutely right. You would turn to God's word and let them read the very words of Jesus. The primary reason he came was to preach the Gospel. And I don't intend to minimize that. But what I do want you to consider now is what the Gospels would look like if they only included his preaching and they omitted all of the stories of Jesus healing the sick and the lame, giving sight to the blind, feeding the hungry, weeping with those who mourn, ministering to the outcasts, the lepers, the sojourner, the foreigners. All of the stories of what he did for people that pointed to his deity. As great as the Sermon on the Mount was, Jesus' ministry would seem incomplete if the Gospels did not include all of the things that he did to minister to those in need. Jesus' head knowledge and his heart actions were perfectly aligned. But if our religion is all head knowledge and no heart action, then our Christian walk would seem incomplete as well. 
all of the healing and miracles Jesus performed were not an end unto themselves. In fact, every person that Jesus healed eventually died. But his miracles were a means to point people to the gospel, to open the door to the words of life, eternal life. I believe that the works of our deacons perform a similar function to open the door for people to see Jesus, our true help in times of need. They are the ambassadors of God's mercy to a hurting world. And when I was, done, when I was nominated for deacon in 2011, I still had a rather simplistic view of what a deacon was. I was pretty sure I was nominated for deacon because I could carry a lot of chairs on my back and I had a pickup truck and I could help people move. Um, but even after I was ordained, I started off mowing grass for people who couldn't do it themselves and uh, moving a lot of chairs and setting up tables and things of that sort. Uh, it was mostly me doing physical tasks uh, that I accomplished largely by myself. Uh, but then our diaconal ministry significantly changed. God started sending our church a lot of refugees from Africa who came to the United States with nothing. They didn't have uh, visas that allowed them to work, so they couldn't even support themselves. And I start working on true mercy ministry, unbeknownst to myself. I still remember one day when I was asked to drive two guys to the dentist. It took a half, I had to take a half day of leave from work uh, to bring these guys to the dentist, and here I am sitting in a waiting room for four hours with two guys who don't speak English while they get cavities filled. Now, between the language barrier and all of the Novocaine in their mouths, we couldn't have a conversation if we wanted to. They had apparently never been to a dentist, and this is taking a while. And I remember thinking, God, this isn't what I signed up for. Why am I taking vacation time for this? I don't want to be stuck here in a dentist's office with strangers I don't know and can't talk to. I want to be outside. I want to mow grass. I want to fix stuff. I want to carry stuff, and I want to do it on my own time. Why am I here with these people? And right there, it was, it was as if God answered me immediately, and he said, Chris, it's not about you. You aren't doing this for you. You're doing this for me. And when I dropped these guys off at their home, they thanked me with big, newly repaired smiles. And I remembered Matthew 25, which said, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You see, I knew the great commandment, love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, but I had not yet grasped the second. Love your neighbor as yourself. My Christian walk was still incomplete because it was still all in my head and it hadn't reached my heart yet, but it did that day. That is when I really learned what my job was as a deacon. I was blessed with the word of God to change my heart so that I could become a blessing to others. 
so I could open the door to share the love of Christ with others. If you look closely at the passages we have just studied this morning, you will see a common thread hidden in the margins. That God multiplies his blessings as we bless one another. In Acts 6, verse 7, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There was visible growth in the ministry of the church due to the apostles and the deacons ministering together, such that even in the midst of persecution, more and more people came to faith. And many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, the word of God spreading and the church being blessed due to this obedience. Fast forward to 1 Timothy 3. After it describes the qualifications for deacons, it concludes with verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So you see that when deacons serve well, the blessing not only goes out to others, but it returns back upon the giver. My faith has been strengthened by working with others. When you see others, when you serve others, you see the power of the gospel proven in ministry firsthand. And there is no greater blessing than seeing the power of God changing people's lives. So let me speak for a moment to the prospective deacons we have here today. Deacons can be called upon to serve in some difficult and messy situations. There is no greater feeling of inadequacy and helplessness than to walk alongside people going through serious problems. You will experience the humility of knowing that there is nothing you can do or say to fix the suffering you see. You can't be Christ, and if you try, you will fail. You can only point to Christ. But there are also times when you get to experience the power of God when he brings people through those difficulties. There will be times when you see people moved to the core by the mercy and generosity of God and his people. Your faith will be strengthened by watching others steadfastly persevere when all they have is Christ to lean on. You get to see firsthand that God is still working miracles in people's lives. You get to see the fruit. I know of at least one man who came as a refugee to us in that ministry who is now a ruling elder in this presbytery. I know of two others who became deacons, and one went on to seminary. These are examples of how God multiplies his blessings when we seek to bless others. But this message isn't just about deacons. It is for all of us who have experienced the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. How will we respond to his love? You see, we have not been blessed by God for his goodness to end with us. We are not called the sacks of grace. We were blessed to be a blessing to others. If we were to look more like Jesus, his grace must flow out from us and bless others with the same word, the same love, and the same grace that he so freely lavished upon us. It was a free gift, so it costs us nothing to give it away. 
How can we do that? Firstly, we can pray for the deacons, as in Acts 6, when the deacons were first commissioned. They need God's grace to benefit others. And that only comes through prayer. Second, we can contribute to the deacons fund. When we give uh, our offerings each Sunday, we can designate a portion of those funds to go specifically to the deacons that help others in need. Every dollar of that money goes directly to people in our church and in our community. Third, participate with your time. Give your heart. Particularly, the women of the church, you can help the deacons minister to other women in ways that the men cannot do by themselves. There are several formal and informal ways you can bless your neighbor. There are shelter meals. There are announcements in Realm all the time that come out to help people in need. I know many of you are involved in these ministries, but there are always more needs than there are providers. So don't be shy about volunteering your time. Mercy ministry is not only the purview of ordained deacons. Each of us has unique gifts that we can offer. And when you obey this command to bless your neighbor, grace abounds to both your neighbor and to you. Let me close by looking at our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy 24, 17. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless, or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in the field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. And when you beat the olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Notice the repetition. Verses 18 and 22. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. If I may rephrase that through the lens of the New Testament, it's saying, remember, you were saved by grace. Therefore, pour grace out upon others. Each of us is called to respond out of gratitude because you were once a slave in Egypt. You were once a slave to sin. But the Lord your God redeemed you from there. This is the gospel, my friends. You have been saved from a life of slavery and redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. So go and bless others with the same grace you have received. Verse 19 says that when you do, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. You never do this alone. It is God who empowers you. When you bless others in his name, his grace abounds. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, your good works are already prepared beforehand by God. I exhort you today to seek out the opportunity to do those good works that God has prepared for you and have the courage to walk in them. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you not only saved us from a life of sin, but you redeemed us to use us for your good works. Lord, we were once your enemies, but we now have the privilege of participating in your work of salvation. Let us be your hands and your feet to show the mercy of God to a broken world so that they may also know that you are the Lord and your steadfast love endures forever. Amen.